All right, welcome to DevCast. Today, John Janik and I are going to pick up our conversation where we left off last time. Uh, we are doing a discussion on cloud migration. And over the years, Dev Technology has done a number of cloud migrations to both AWS and Azure environments. And we've generated a lot of lessons learned and kind of put a process in place that we view as sort of a, a four-step process that isn't necessarily necessarily a linear process, but that agile feedback loop sort of process, starting with uh, working through IT strategy, which we spoke about at length last week, a, a discovery phase, which we hope to chat about a little bit today, and then deliver and operational phases of the migration process. And again, it's not a linear approach, but something that continues to inform previous steps and helps you change and make course corrections as you go. You ready to uh, kick off the conversation, John? Yeah, I'm excited. This is one of those opportunities where we really get to dive into something that, that we've been doing for a while and really talk about it at a, at a technical level. So um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Cool, cool. Well, so like I said, we wanted to chat a little bit about the discovery process, right? Because you start these cloud migration efforts and, well, you know, frankly, if you were going to move an entire enterprise, there's a lot to um, kind of figure out, you know, what, what systems do you have? Where are they? Who's the system owner? Uh, do you have a configuration management database? What documentation exists on some of these legacy systems? There's really a lot to unpack there, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. You know, I think uh, one of the things that that's really so let's break that down, right? There's that is this. So everybody likes throwing out, oh, you need to do discovery, right? You need to do a discovery spring. You need to do a discovery phase. You need to take your pick, right? What's really interesting is that very few conversations involve what does discovery entail? And I think you hit on the big ones. How do we figure out what's in our inventory list? And there's there's those big categories that we can think of, right? So, you know, everybody, I was uh, on LinkedIn recently and somebody was posting about, about software inventories and supply chain management. And believe it or not, I think that's part of your discovery too. Not only what's on your network, but what are the things that tie into those things, right? What is your dependency network look like? Um, all those things that, because that's your supply chain, right? And if any one of those dependencies are altered or, or interrupted or uh, suddenly unavailable, what is the impact on your existing systems, right? So there's all these really interesting and intricate interdependencies. And so I think there's a conversation around both both the work that you do to discover and also the work that you should be focusing on automating in order to discover, right? Because that component, as I as I mentioned in this LinkedIn post, I, I made a comment where it's like, if you're still doing software inventory by hand, chances are it's out of date the moment you click save, right? Absolutely, that's true. You know, you bring up a lot of good points there. And I think, you know, you start sitting down with customers and talking to them about a discovery phase. And I think the initial reaction is, that sounds like a lot of wasted cycles, um, you know, going through documentation, building reports, spreadsheets, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and it doesn't sound like there's a lot of value there, right? Um, and I certainly understand that hesitation, right? I mean, I think, you know, you are looking to find quick wins, which we spoke about at length last time. Like, how do, how do you identify those quick wins and how do you start moving systems immediately? Um, 
But it's not to say that discovery should be, you know, pushed to the back burner because let's be entirely honest. You are going to do discovery, whether you set set aside time in the beginning of your effort to begin this process or if you just do it as you go, because some of the items that you're going to have to discover include, you know, where is that system hosted, right? What are the, the the memory and processing requirements for keeping that system running? So you have to do discovery, and whether whether that happens when you just move a system to the cloud, you know, and say, oh, geez, uh, the CPU is pegged at 99%. Uh, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to uh, you know use a bigger machine, right? You know, so you are going to do discovery, but I think there's a great value in doing it, starting it at least up front. And as you know, John, we've kind of developed this, um, what we call the meet in the middle framework, right? It's a top down and a bottom up discovery process, um, allowing us to look at, you know, not only those systemic level uh needs, right? What are those actual requirements of the system? Um, is there a configuration management uh, around that system? What, and you, you hit on automation, that's a, that's a big one. Um, automation maturity, as you're doing that kind of bottom-up discovery. But uh, we, we also view that top-down discovery as well. What are the data storage needs? How many system interfaces are there? You know, what are, what are the requirements of those? Um, so, you know, there are a lot of things to unpack here, and I think we're probably going to uh, only be able to glance the surface of this. But, uh, you know, what aspect of discovery do you think is maybe one of the most important um, areas to focus on when you're starting a migration? Yeah, so I, you know, that's a really great question. So let's start at the beginning, right? You, you've got, so last episode, right? Meanwhile, but last episode, we talked about this idea that, you want to iterate and you want to do those quick wins, right? So let's let's assume a worst case scenario. You walk into an organization and they're like, we want to get to the cloud, but we don't trust our software inventory. By the way, for a government agency, this would be mind blowing because FISMA requires reporting and see and all the the different uh, one you know a um, sorry the A three hundred exhibits and all the different reporting for budgeting requires inventories, right? But as we all know, when we've done these things they're all horribly out of date and they're never correct. And they're oftentimes skewed to meet certain bureaucratic requirements. So let's say you walk into an environment and you're, you just don't trust the data. So how do you get to where you want to be? And I think the very first thing you need to do, right. And we talked about this last time is, okay, well, what's, what's our strategy? Where are we trying to get to? Right. We talked about the different, well, we very briefly talked about the different buckets that we talk about of, of, of what does uh, a, a normalized cloud state for an application look like. And then what you can start doing is you can start saying, okay, where do we start? Well, we start where you do your work today. Right. So oftentimes in a discovery, you know, there will be a shadowing period or a ride along or a side by side where you actually have a technologist engage with somebody in the business operations and says, what's what's your day look like? Right. And what that tells you is these are the high priority applications that get used on a regular basis. And those, as we've talked about, may not be the first ones to move. Maybe those, but they're important because it starts unpacking the discovery process. In the, in the meantime, right, you can start looking at, well, what is our top-down perspective, right? That's a very bottom-up 
user-centric perspective. You can also go into the data center and run uh, a systems map, right? Use some tools to get in there and understand what is running in that space. And again, that's kind of a bottom-up. From a top-down perspective, you can take those data artifacts that have been published and have been filed and start learning from that perspective too. And you can ask the questions of leadership of what things are important. So I, I think there's an interesting discussion around where do you start? From my perspective, it's always best to start with, well, what do you have that you trust? And who can you talk with who's going to give you ground truth? Right? Absolutely. No, I, I think those are some, some good points for uh, where to view that starting point. Um, it's also easy to start looking to auto automation and tooling around that as well. And I know that's something that, you know, Amazon has recognized that need for as well to be able to perform, you know, kind of that deep discovery, understanding the inventory, understanding the business cases. And, and they recently purchased a company called TSO Logic um, to help perform some of these and automate kind of the that holistic view of your portfolio management. Um, so, you know, even even a large company like Amazon realizes, hey, look, if folks are going to move into our cloud environment, it's very essential for them to understand what systems they have, what state they're in, um, what are the operating requirements, because let's not forget another important part of discovery. That is going to help inform that estimate of how much is this actually going to cost to run to migrate and run these systems in the cloud. You know, until you know what those system specifications are, you're not really going to be able to come up with an informed estimate. And I'll, I'll tell you what, it, it's very rare that you wind up talking to a, a CIO who says, hey, don't worry about the cost. We'll, we'll pay whatever it is, right? They, this, that's a number that matters to, to probably all of our federal customers. Yeah, I think that's, that's really good. That, that's a really good point that we all like to think our agency pain points are unique. Uh, but although the people we serve and the mission we serve might be very unique, oftentimes there are commonalities, especially in our technology and how we choose to employ it. So there's so much we can learn from each other, right? And I think that's a, a really key component to this whole conversation around discovery too, which is doing the environmental assessment, right? Who else is done this and what have what, what what were the lessons learned out of their processes i think at this point enough people have moved to the cloud that there are a lot of shared experiences that can be used to, to build a foundation of knowledge what do you think well of course i mean i i think there are always going to be shared experiences that should inform um how you execute your migration but I also think, um, like a lot of things in life, you know, those experiences of others depend on their unique circumstances, right? You know, when we were, when my wife and I were having our first child, um, we got a lot of parenting advice from everybody. Some of it was solicited, some of it was not unsolicited. But the best piece of advice I got was, <laughs> listen to all the advice, but do what works best for for your family unit, right? Because it might work for somebody else, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for you. And I, I really think the same is true um, in a lot of these major technology discussions, right? There, yeah. There's one way that 
this organization migrated to the cloud that was very successful for them. But constraints and factors within your own agency or your own organization are going to be different, right? Um, and and you have to kind of uh, adapt to that. You know that that's why we've you know created this methodology of agile around how we develop software, right? Because it's not a strict science. There has to be some art and feedback and um, changing to that process as you go. So I think I think it is very important to understand how other folks have migrated to understand the best practices and allow that to inform how we move forward as uh, as a team as we're migrating systems. Yeah, and let's talk about that a little bit because I think it's a really key component. You talked about discovery being this, this process um, and you used a word there and I can't remember what it was, but it triggered a thought. So I'm going to kind of work with it and, and we'll see where we go. You know, one of the things when we talk about that, that fast iteration, right? Oh, I, I remember where we were going with this. I want to tie the whole idea of discovery to this idea of data, right? So I, I posted recently on LinkedIn, uh, in case you can't tell, I'm a big LinkedIn fan because it's a way to have these kind of great conversations without all the noise that goes along with Twitter. So I tend to be a lot on LinkedIn, right? But it's really interesting to me that we talk about discovery being this way to learn and to understand what's happening in your environment. And I think specifically, there is a lot of data that gets generated out of good discovery that allows you to refine your questions. Right. And this is something that gets missed a lot. So, oh, I, so Adam, you talked about how when you were a new parent, people gave you a lot of advice. Uh, and, and the reality is that's all data coming at you. Right. And you use that data to understand this is what the environment might look like. Understanding, of course, that your environment is going to be different. So use the data that's given to you as a guidepost and an understanding to develop questions. The discovery process, again, helps you understand your current existing environment. And the more discovery you do in the ways we talked about by running tools in the data center to kind of understand what's running right now, where's it at, who does it, right? Looking at the policies that are set in place. Do you have governance components? Do you have CCB documentation, right? What's running, where's it running, how's it running? That's all data. That's all insight that allows you to define the questions that you need to ask and continue to refine on that. Because I think the other thing you made, a, you just commented on that was so important too, is that that data helps you understand your constraints. And those constraints are what will help you get to a functional, innovative, uh, really the, the, the outcome that you're looking for. You know, and those those things all link together. And this is why, you know, you asked in the beginning, why is discovery so important? Or at least that's how I interpreted what you asked. And that's one of the biggest reasons why. Because discovery gets you the data that gets you the insights you need in order to achieve the outcome that you want. Right? Right. I think that's entirely true. You know, we talked about the IT strategy phase and much of that is sort of that assessment, the lay of the land, understanding uh, at an enterprise level what you have, understanding 
what your stakeholders expect from the process, getting a sense of operational requirements. But when you start moving into discovery, things definitely start getting a little bit more technical. Well, I, I should say a lot more technical, right? And they and they absolutely need to, because um, you know one of the the outputs in my mind from the, this discovery process is being able to create a roadmap for your actual migration, right? Take that strategy, you know, overlay what you've found in discovery, and you're now going to have um, you know, kind of all this great data that you talked about that basically is going to guide you through how and when to migrate systems. Because, you know, there are going to be a lot of things that um, come out of discovery that are probably going to be unpleasant. You may find systems in your enterprise that you didn't know existed. Um, we, we've certainly seen that before. Um, machines um, that are hosting multiple applications, you know, on a whether it's probably like a, on a, a physical server somewhere, um, and maybe they have strange requirements that they actually need to be in the same JVM. I've, I've seen that strange stuff before as well. So there's going to be a lot of stuff that comes out of discovery um, where you're probably going to figure out where more cycles need to be spent, more discovery needs to be done, and you're going to find areas where your quick wins are going to be because that's going to be those systems that we talked about where, hey, maybe, maybe there are very few system interfaces. Um, it's already running on you know, the latest version of um, Red Hat Linux, and boy, that's easy to spin up uh, uh, an EC2 instance in the cloud and, and just port our system over to that. You know, so you are going to be able to identify quick wins, and you also are going to start being able to identify those projects where even more discovery is required. Yeah, I think that's a really good, again, you know, the data that you gain allows you to refine the questions to gain more data. Right there, there's no there's no stopping point on this journey. A lot of folks think that there's a point at which you can come and say we're done. We have done all the discovery that we need to do. Right, and this goes right back to the beginning of the conversation. If you're doing it right, you're always discovering new things and you're always innovating. That doesn't mean in your current operating state, but what you're doing is you're finding well, where should we go next? And this is another interesting play into the whole supply chain side of the discussion too, because when you're doing discovery properly, it's not just what's in your perimeter or in your security boundary, right? It's also what systems and environments and software do you tie to and have dependency upon in order to do your work as well, right? So there's this, it becomes very quickly this huge expansive discussion around what does it actually look like in order to be effective in my role? And you can't do it all at once. You will you will literally spend all of your time doing it. So don't make <laughs> it make it part of your agile process, right? Right. Again, I mean, I, all this stuff does need to be done in a very agile way because if you just sit around and do this in a waterfall. Um, I'll call it a, a meticulously painstaking process of documentation um, prior to doing any execution. Well, you might be discovering things that aren't useful, right? You, you know, spending cycles doing something that, well, you know, actually just taking an action and trying to migrate the system, we would have discovered more than just um, SSHing into the box and taking a look at this and looking at that. You know, sometimes action is the best course of discovery, not just sitting around um, in a read-only mode trying to identify things and put together documentation. Yep. 
I think that's a really interesting, yeah. And I think that's part of it, right? It's this idea. So we talked a lot of it last, last episode about the innovation piece too, and how we're constantly innovating, innovating based on our constraints and stuff like that. Your discovery has constraints too, right? So the very first thing you're going to do, like we talked about, is look at those policy and guidance, the CCB documents, the CM documents. What kind of documentation have you produced? Is it accurate? Do you trust it? Right. What kind of very broad lay of the land? Oh, we have some Red Hat Linux over here. We have some Microsoft over here. We have some Oracle over here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we've got we've got some of these systems and uh, and oh hey look like you said oh here's a Drupal box. Well, that's interesting. Why don't we just move it? Right. It doesn't have any dependencies. It kind of lives on its own. Wikis are great. Like that. people stand up these wikis and then they just live on their own. Um, but you find a system that you can move, and then you move it. And that's that's good discovery, right? What is our quick win? What do we understand? What do we learn? Uh, and then how do we actually move it forward? And that's good discovery. So I think that's an important part of it too, right? There's there's discovery, and you can – it's like analysis paralysis. You can very much get into this mode of we don't understand everything yet. We have to understand more. Um, and uh, And you can literally – freeze up your entire organization that way right the answer is don't do that start a discovery process and then keep iterating yeah absolutely you know i think there's something else that's very interesting that comes out of discovery um that we don't talk about very often and uh you know in the it strategy portion of you know a migration plan right it part of it is kind of that assessment of your DevOps maturity. And some of that is the automation, but like we talked about in our previous segment, it has more to do with that organizational culture. And what's interesting about discovery, even though it really isn't about establishing um, kind of this cross-functional culture, but this is really where you see how mature you are and gives you a great opportunity to increase that maturity before you actually do work. It, you know, and by work, I mean uh, migrating systems, replatforming, re-architecting, whatever that might look like further down the line. But here's where your development teams, your infrastructure folks, security folks, uh, QA folks really start coming together to understand some of these system level requirements, the interfaces, what does it mean to be successful to migrate the system? How do we migrate the system? And hopefully you start getting all these folks in the room together um, during, you know, kind of uh, what I'll call a low impact phase, right? Because once you start moving systems, changing code, changing configuration, developing automation, and moving something to the cloud where it costs real money, um, you know, it, it's it's better to kind of create that collaboration, create that DevOps culture. Um, in this low impact phase. So I, I think there's an advantage there that we don't often recognize, but it's something that I've seen that kind of happens naturally um, through this process as well. That's a huge value add because once you start, you know, change, changing configuration, changing code, well, you really need to make sure that those teams are communicating and that they are collaborating. So even if you don't have a high DevOps maturity moving into a cloud migration, I think you'll find that it's a fantastic opportunity to really push for that organizational alignment around specific tasks to achieve success here. Oh, to totally agree. You know, I, I can't, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think that in some ways it's a control gate, 
right? In other words, if you if it takes two weeks to get everybody scheduled to get together to have a conversation around discovery, right? That's not an auspicious start. <laughs> you know what I mean? You you, you really these are in and really great point, Adam. Right? That that trigger to say we're all in, gang. We're gonna we're gonna do this, and we're gonna be collaborative, and we're gonna be uh, co-located and integrated, and you know, really work towards the outcomes that we're. And and I don't mean co-located necessarily physically, especially in this new environment we're in. But you can be virtually co-located. You really can. It's there's plenty of ways to work together apart, right? So I don't think these things are impossible to do in today's environments. The point being that if you cannot get everybody in the room at the same time for a conversation around how do we understand this environment better, you might have some other problems you need to work through first, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and it's to be expected that you probably are going to have issues, right? You know, I think we live in an error here in the federal space, uh, particularly, where how we create contracts for uh, different teams to work together and how we incentivize that and how we, we how the federal government and the, the contract offices there manage these contracts and incentivize individuals and different teams to work together uh, is very interesting. It's pretty much still in its infancy, I would say, but uh, a lot of headway has been made there. And, and John, I know in a previous life, you've kind of served as a contract officer. Um, I know this probably wasn't something that we were planning on chatting about, but I'd be interested to start getting some of your thoughts about um, how we might consider um, advising our government customers to change contracting to incentivize um, different uh, contract teams to work together for a common goal. Yeah, what if, well, that's a really great question because I think you know the the challenge is, and this is where you really need strong leadership. In your uh, in your contracting organization, you know the it's an interesting conversation um, because there's two pieces to it. One that oftentimes the mission side and the contract side, right? People don't understand. There's two different lines of reporting in this arrangement. You know, the contracting organization technically legally reports up through the procurement executive of an agency, right? And is completely outside the chain of command necessarily of uh, a lot of the lower components, the program managers, the, even some of the more senior people in the organization. And it's done that way on purpose in order to comply with federal law and, and some of the things that we want to do from a federal procurement perspective. So, so in your, in, you know, to your point, Adam, the very first thing agencies can do is to encourage and find ways for your procurement staff to integrate closely with the people doing the work, right? And this may sound completely counterintuitive because, you know, oftentimes procurement agencies try or procurement organizations try and shield their COs as much as possible so that they have the necessary time to do the work they need to do. All very important and the risk and the, uh, and the responsibility they bear is tremendous. So don't get me wrong there. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of warrants. There's a lot of different kinds of, of ways to approach procurement. Um, the military and even the foreign service do this pretty well in that what we do is we say, look, 
you know, not everybody needs to manage $300 million portfolios. You know what I mean? And so it's entirely possible to say to somebody, we want you to do a lot of smaller activities very quickly and very well. And so we're only going to authorize you the ability to contract up to a quarter million dollars or a million dollars or $5 million. And in this way, it's really interesting because what you do is you say, you know, your goal isn't a 10-year contract. Your goal is complete work for a specific need executed quickly, which is the very quintessence of agile, right? And so we really, you know, if you're really talking about how do we reform contracting, it's it's two parts, right? Bring the contractors closer to the work or to the contracting officers, integrate them. Uh, and, and, and what we've tried to do is we've tried to set up all these different layers of management in between. You know, we have COs and then we have cores and then we have GTMs, right? Uh, and, and it's just created this awful mess of, and I'm sorry, we have coders in between cores and GTMs, right? So, so there's this awful mess of hierarchy that we've tried to interject between our contracting officers and the delivery. And the reality is it doesn't work. It's not appropriate. It's not good. It's not where it needs to be. Uh, and that's just been proven time and time and time again. So how do we move things faster? And, you know, you've got a lot of fantastic examples on how to do that. Uh, but the basis of it, you know, you got a lot of work by USDS to kind of set up the new DTIP, uh, uh, the uh, Digital Information Technology Professional Procurement Certifications, right? The Defense Acquisitions University is doing a lot of work with that now. Um, you know, but the reality is, is that until you start getting agencies who lean into it and say like, hey, we are going to take for every GS-13 program manager we're going to stick a GS-13 procurement specialist with them at that level with a warrant ready to spend, Th then we're, we're not going to make it, right? So, so there's, there's my challenge for any govy that's listening out there. Um, talk to your procurement executive about what does an integrated procurement component look like for your organization. And let's, let's bring those things together because, um, We've spent a lot of time talking about discovery and what that looks like and how to break down those silos. And then we kind of took the bend towards culture. That whole cycle, really, if you want to be really philosophical about the whole discovery cycle, it starts all the way back with budgeting and uh, the appropriation and how are we going to pay for this and who's going to do the work and how do we write the RFI and the RFP. By the way, I hate RFIs. We can make that a whole segment. The RFP and all the different components, right? Because discovery isn't just about the technical discovery. It's about understanding where you've been and where you want to go. So I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm I'm glad I asked you that question. I didn't know that you were going <laughs> to be able to give such a complete answer out on the fly, but that's that's fantastic. Um, and I, I definitely feel pretty strongly with uh, in, in alignment with everything you said there. Uh, just kind of thinking back to previous modernizations and migrations, uh, the ones that wound up being the most successful had a lot of engagement from the contract officers or the, the cores. Um, 
they were right there in some of the meetings. You know, they were they were actually sometimes asking the toughest questions um, and ensuring that everyone was on in agreement on what was discussed and what the timeline for a deliverable should be. And and honestly, that's fantastic. Sometimes you do need uh, I don't want to say an adult in the room because you know I. Uh, us developers, us IT project managers are certainly capable of you know running projects. But I think when you are in the middle of a very challenging technical effort, um, it's nice to almost have someone who's kind of trained to be an uh, objective third party um, reviewing the situation as it's unfolding. And I think there's a lot of value to it. I think it protects both. The, 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 it obviously protects the government. It pr- helps protect the contractors. And I think ultimately it leaves everybody in a better position to achieve success. So um, yeah, that's a very interesting little sidebar we had there. Yeah. I think, you know, to your point, what is the stakeholders and perspectives, right? This even is a discovery thing too. The more stakeholders and perspectives you have, the more data and observations you will be able to collect and the better your outcome will be. So to your point, gee, having that that contracting officer or the core who's very well-versed in acquisitions in the room asking the hard questions made our outcome better. And and the, there's a part of me that's like, well, yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I think it's worth reiterating that, that, yeah, because they bring a different perspective into the room. They bring a different perspective that's different from the PM who's looking along their bureaucratic line of sight. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but rather they're in the organization. They're part of the delivery for the organization's mission. And so they have a very specific perspective. They don't share the contractor's perspective, who, again, has their own perspective. Instead, they're sharing their perspective, which is, how do I spend money to the benefit of the taxpayer, right, to fulfill a need of the U.S. government? You know what I mean? So it's these different perspectives that all come together to create the outcome that you're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, again, it's another data point. And, and going back to you know really what we're talking about here, that discovery phase. Um, yeah, that 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 contracting officer is another uh, source of data, right? Their input and their perspective on the situation helps inform and drive decisions, and is absolutely essential to making sure things run smoothly through the course of a, a modernization migration effort. So. Um, yeah, it's interesting that kind of everything that we talked about in discovery ultimately leads us to more data, right? And yep. and it doesn't have to be in a pure and simple discovery phase. Again, we're not doing waterfall here. You know, a lot of this discovery we're talking about with a contracting officer, that could honestly be happening, you know, through execution and operation at any phase, right? As all this discovery is, right? It's it's a very fluid process. We're ho- hopefully always learning together and hopefully capturing this as data to inform and or or verify, you know, our decisions. So, um, yeah, I think that's probably the main takeaway from our, our dis- discovery conversation, John. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, yeah. I You know, um, be, be in that learning mode, right? I, I, you know, maybe that's how we should have started this conversation. There's a lot that we can talk about with discovery 
But if you're not open to what you're going to find, then, you know, and that's a really good perspective. I, all too often, people begin a discovery phase with the end in mind. And, and I just think when you do that, you set yourself up for failure. Be open, keep as many people in the loop as you can, um, and be integrated, and you will come out with some amazing outcomes. All right. Well, I think that's a great place to end it today. Uh, thanks again, John. Uh, another great uh, dev cast in the books. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thanks to you and to Karen for all her help. And uh, I think we've got some great guests scheduled in the coming weeks. So see everybody on DevCast soon. Don't forget to follow Dev on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Uh, we've got plenty of new positions coming open too, including all the discussions around data today. We're looking for a data architect. And we've got plenty of other opportunities to work with data uh, and with some of our really interesting work uh, in our different client projects. So keep in touch, keep in tune, and look forward to talking with you again soon. Thanks, everyone.